the glory days are here to say the 80s horror show. Take a stroll down memory's lane, it's time to start the show. The gory days, the gory days, the gory days. Welcome to the gory days, the show where we take a stroll down memory slain to remember our favorite horror movies, once from the 1980s and early 1990s, and now from everywhere. Today's a very special solo episode. Today, I don't have a guest. I had a uh, funny idea to introduce some uh, titles and credits to make uh, you think that I had. Oh, excuse me, maybe a uh, Academy Award-winning actor in here, and I thought that would be really funny, but uh, it's really easy for the wind to uh, leave my sails whenever I'm doing an episode all by myself, so I think I'm just going to go right into the movie today. Today we are talking about Cujo, the 1983 movie directed by Louis Teague, but of course based on the original novel by Stephen King, so I wanted to start off by talking about my personal experience with this, uh, first the book and then the movie. So if you're familiar with Hell Hellraiser, if you're familiar with our The Dead Zone episode, there's a character in that movie and in the uh, book called Frank Dodd. He's a police officer, but, I mean, by day, serial killer, absolute monster by night. And in this book, Cujo, in The Dead Zone, he dies. In Cujo, it's kind of a spiritual successor to The Dead Zone in that Frank Dodd's ghost is heavily implied, or his you know malevolent spirit, his essence, whatever, what have you, is somehow transmuted into the dog Cujo and is like somehow commutes his, his evil tendencies. Uh, I'm not sure how much I read into that uh, interpretation, but in the book, it's much more... I mean, Frank Dodd isn't mentioned at all in the movie, and I'll get into all of that later, but in the book, um, yeah, I'm pretty sure the first scene is a little boy, uh, Tad, in this case, the star... Well, one of the stars... Oh, my gosh. Oh, no. <laughs> this is the first time I'm doing an episode with a cup of coffee in front of me, and I uh, just spilled a little bit. Oh, man. Thank God it didn't get on my laptop. Uh, give me one second while I clean this up. That's better. I, as some of you listeners may know, try to avoid coffee whenever I'm recording these episodes because I find that it uh, destroys my short-term memory and makes it a little bit harder to carry on my interviews. But since I'm doing this one solo, I wanted to have my energy up. But if you're going to, if you're starting your own podcast, here's a word of advice: if you're, if you have liquids of any kind, make sure that you have paper towels or a rag or something close by. I just learned that the hard way. Anyway, Cujo, uh, the book originally was written in 1981, or at least it was published in 1981, and I didn't get my hands on it until uh, probably like 97, uh, when I was just a little kid, and I remember, so my mom was big into Stephen King, and she had a number of his books in uh, an armoire, or a wardrobe, what have you, in the living room or in the hallway or something. And I remember picking it up and being cautioned how scary it was. And I, you know, reassured her and myself and everyone that no, 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 I can handle this. And the biggest memory I have, I don't know if I ever finished the book when I was uh, that young, but I have this memory of being uh, afraid in my room of the closet. My, my bedroom uh, was situated in such a way that my closet was directly to my left, excuse me, directly to my left. And I just had this image of these like bright red eyes peering through the darkness because in the opening of this book, the uh, 
like scary thing in the closet that Tad, the little boy, is seeing is speaking to him, or at least like, you know, pushing his thoughts into Tad's mind, and it's saying the kinds of things like, your parents won't believe you, and every night I will be here a little closer until one night I'll get you, or something like that, and it scared the crap out of me, and I remember having my, <laughs> making my dad have to check the closet every night, and even when he did, still being too scared to roll over and look into the closet, or at least like the closet door, and and imagine the, the door sliding open slowly, or quickly, or anything, gosh, gosh, yeah, I was a, I was a pretty, uh, I was a scaredy cat, I was the kind of kid who would walk through the uh, horror section of Blockbuster, of my own volition, but also of my own volition, like putting horse blinders on the sides of my eyes and just like carefully tiptoeing through lest I be surprised or shocked at any one of the covers on the VHSs or DVDs as they eventually became. And the same goes for Halloween stores. I would walk up and down those aisles and I'd just be terrified of the masks. And especially now, the quality of some of these masks that they put out at the Halloween stores I, I still get that way sometimes. And uh, last personal share is I, as much as I love horror movies and as much as I'm a fan, I cannot do uh, the mazes at Not Scary Farm and Halloween Horror Nights and even like people's garages. I just I can't handle that. That's that's not my cup of tea. But the movies and the books, on the other hand. So I don't know if I ever finished the book, but uh, I don't know if Stephen King ever read it. Here's a fun fact. Stephen King has no memory of publishing uh, this book, Kijo. Kucho. Stephen King's admitted several times that he was so into his alcohol addiction and other things, namely cocaine, at the time that he does not remember writing the book. So it's fascinating. Could you imagine waking up one day, uh, probably with the worst hangover you've ever had in your life, to find that a entire finished book is done and you have no memory of reading it? I'm sure he, you know, took it to his editor and they chopped it up and they turned it into the book that we know and love today. But yeah, I can only imagine what that would feel like. The film was released on Friday, August 12th, 1983, with an estimated budget of $5 million and grossed about 22, uh, $21,200,000 domestically, making it the fourth highest grossing horror film of 1983, right behind Jaws 3D, Psycho 2, and Twilight Zone The Movie. Wow, those are some big contenders for the time, but if you've seen this movie, you can understand how it can go toe-to-toe with some of those big franchise movies. What's interesting, as I found in my uh, research, is that the original director, I mentioned earlier that this was uh, directed by uh, Louis Teague, who, of course, did Alligator, and Cat's Eye, The Jewel of the Nile, Navy Seals, Wedlock, Four Fishes, Five Fishes, and The Dukes of Hazard Reunion in 1997. But the original director was Peter Medak, who most famously did The Changeling back in 1980, and other made-for-TV dramas and comedies. But Peter Medak left the project two days into filming, along with his director of photography, Tony Richardson, and they were quickly replaced by the current director, Louis Teague, and the current director of photography, Jean Debon, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, respectively. Two days into filming, these people leave the project. I I don't have any more uh, info. I don't know if it was as uh, tumultuous as some of these other uh, movies that we've done. 
Uh, but man, having your director leave two days into filming, uh, anyway, it turns out to be an amazing film, and I'm sure that's no accident. Uh, the technical skill and the partnership between Louis Teague and Jean Dumont is what makes this movie amazing, the shots and the direction, and anyway, let's get into it. As I mentioned, the film follows a rabid St. Bernard who traps a mother and her child inside their car without food or water during a heat wave, and it follows their attempts to survive. Cujo, a friendly St. Bernard, contracts rabies and conducts a reign of terror on a small American town. That small American town is none other than Castle Rock. That's right, Castle Rock, Rhode Island, uh, makes its second appearance here in the Stephen King universe, as I understand it. It was introduced in The Dead Zone, and now here it follows up with uh, Cujo. It would also go on to feature in Stand By Me, The Dark Half, and Needful Things. And of course, the Hulu TV show, uh, Castle Rock, the same name. I don't know if it got renewed for a second season. I'm pretty sure it did. I only watched about eight episodes of it, and I'm a big Stephen King fan, so it didn't grab my attention, but I don't know how the rest of you fared. Maybe you made it all the way to the end and you could tell me uh, what happened and why a second sequel is totally necessary, but we aren't talking about that show today. Today we're talking about Cujo. So before I get into the recap, I just want to mention the taglines for this movie. Very funny. The first one is, who let the dog out? So I know the Baja Men and their song, which came out in, I want to say, like, maybe 2003 or something, very obviously way after uh, this movie came out. But I'm curious if that was just a phrase, like a, a, a turn of phrase to say, who let the dogs out? Like, what, what, what are all these, what's all this ruckus going on? Who sent in the, who sent in the clowns? Like... So, who let the dog out, I'm sure, is uh, a fun tongue-in-cheek reference to uh, a common phrase at the time, but all I ever think of is uh, Baja Man. Who let the dogs out? Yeah. The second one is Unleash the Terror. Once again, another pun. I feel like it's it's still the case, but the, the adherence to puns in movie posters is always a, a fun thing. I feel like it's an art to, to toe that line between cringe and uh, genuine humor. The final one, though... <laughs> His bite is worse than his bark. Much, much worse. Dot, dot, dot. Necessary. Dot, dot, dot. Uh, That one's probably my favorite. Yeah, so without further ado, let's get into it. The movie stars Donna, I'm sorry, the movie stars Dee Wallace as Donna Trenton and Danny Pintaro in his film debut. He was only six years old when he plays little Tad Trenton. In fact, this poor little boy, he didn't know how to read. I'm not sure how he was cast. I'm sure, well, he was cast because he's a cute little kid, but he cannot read. He did not know how to read during the filming of this picture. So all of his lines, as great as he is at delivering them, were uh, spoken to him moments before they hit said action. It was the kind of thing where his mom would be off camera and she would read the the sentence, the line, and then he would repeat it in, in character. Uh, which is pretty crazy. So <laughs> if you don't know how to read, but you still want to be an actor, there's a future for you as long as you're six years old. The film also stars Daniel Hugh Kelly as Vic Trenton, also in his film debut. So for those of you keeping track at home, we've got Donna, Vic, as a hus- husband and wife, and their son, Tad. Another member is Steve Kemp, played by Christopher Stone, who unfortunately is having an affair with Donna. Now, even though Vic and Donna may seem like they're in a happy marriage with their six-year-old son, Donna is getting a little something extra on the side with Steve, and her husband Vic has no idea. 
There are some other bit parts around here. The Camber family, uh, police officer, or should I say sheriff, George Bannerman, and of course, Cujo. I love in the credits when they credit animals. Uh, they give them a na- I mean, animals have names, obviously. So in this movie, Cujo uh, Mo was played. Oh, for God's sake. Cujo was played by Mo. Uh, less exciting trivia. Cujo was actually played by four different St. Bernards, a couple mechanical dogs, and one Black Lab Great Dane mix in a St. Bernard costume. So I don't know what that means when you put a... Okay, let's break that down. A Black Lab... So, yeah, you could put, like, some, like, fluffiness on it. It's not going to enjoy it, but you can make it look like a uh, St. Bernard, maybe from the side or behind. And then a Great Dane mix in that black lab. First off, that sounds like a gorgeous dog. Um, But then to put a St. Bernard costume on it, uh, I, I, I would love to know who gets that credit. Either the pet wrangler or the costume designer, I guess. Um. And then finally, in some shots, stuntman Gary Morgan played Cujo while wearing a large dog costume. So that's two dog costumes, one for a human and one for a different kind of dog so that they could all look like Cujo. So let's just start uh, right where it begins. Cujo's chasing a rabbit, and this is how he gets the rabies. He's chasing this rabbit. You get this low-angle dog, and the rabbit's chasing, or the, the rabbit's running around, and Cujo's chasing him, and the music is all, like, uh, uh, fun, and it kind of reminds me of, like, Homeward Bound. And then he goes in, uh, the rabbit goes down a tunnel. Cujo gets his head kind of stuck in it, and there's bats down there, and the bats, one of them bites Cujo right on the nose, and sure enough, we can only assume that that bat had contracted rabies, and now so has Cujo. Maybe I should take a step back. Does, uh, if there's anyone out there who doesn't know what rabies is, it is still very deadly. It's it's treatable, but as long as you do something about it within, I want to say, like the f- first few hours, uh, the symptoms include uh, a hydrophobia. You, you don't want anything to do with water. You don't want to drink water, which is awful because another symptom is intense dehydration. So a combination of you really need water and the last thing you want in the world is water is uh, something that contributes to inflammation of the uh, membrane of the brain, which only causes confusion and irritability and violence, and eventually the person goes into shock, or in this case, uh, excuse me, the dog. So that's a really sad story for Cujo. If you are an animal lover out there, I apologize in advance. This is not a happy story. This is not a dog's journey or driving in, the art of driving in the rain. <laughs> this is Cujo, 1983, the St. Bernard. And it's funny, I always wanted a St. Bernard, and I think I still do at some point in my life, but <laughs> this this one definitely puts a, a damper on it for a couple of reasons, both uh, fictional and uh, real, real life. And I'll tell you about those later. So after he gets bitten, that's when we meet our uh, main characters, Donna, Vic, and Tad, because uh, Tad uh, is having a bad dream, and we get that scene about uh, you know him racing to bed and uh, his dad giving him the monster words, which is this... Uh, like rehearse thing did your parents ever do this for you where they would like do some kind of ritual or something to make your bed or your bedroom perfectly safe throughout the night so that no monsters could come and ideally you wouldn't have to run into their room at three in the morning and wake them up and and uh make 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 them let you sleep with them man lots of pronouns in that anyway as we're following this we learned that tad uh his father vic 
<laughs> we learned that Vic is a like marketing consultant or uh, marketing. He, he's like a madman guy, and he's created this campaign for a cereal company, Sharp Cereal. He's created this character named Professor Raspberry Zingers. Who uh, it's funny. I don't. I don't know who plays him. Maybe I have this here. I don't know. But uh, he's a professor guy. He's got this brown suit, and he holds up uh, the cereal, and he says, he takes a bite, and he's like, "Nope, nothing wrong here." And then there is something horribly wrong. There's a scare of uh, children vomiting and uh, spewing bright red fluid from every part of them, uh, which leads people to believe that they are uh, internally hemorrhaging, which causes a panic. Luckily, no one is actually hurt except for the discomfort of vomiting and diarrhea, but uh, no blood is involved. It's just something in the food coloring that's uh, causing some problems. So, in fact, there is something wrong there. Um, and uh, there's there's really only one opportunity for the people, for characters within the movie to lampoon that. But it results in Vic needing to leave. He needs to leave Donna and Tad to go to, I guess, New York or somewhere. He needs to go, or I don't know, he needs to go to a big city uh, to deal with this uh, advertising crisis, which leaves Donna and Tad by themselves. Before that, though, I'll just skip. I'll skip the nonsense. To Donna finds, uh, sorry, Vic finds out Donna is cheating on him, but there's no time to deal with it. They literally part ways on that note of Vic knowing that Donna was actively cheating on him. She said she'd stop, but he has to go. He has to deal with this. And unfortunately, he had no time to fix the car. They have a car that needed fixing. And so it's interesting what's happening here. This this movie and the book, too, set themselves up in such a way that we need to establish where all the characters are going to be and why they will all be busy unable to help Donna and Vic uh, or Tad when they're trapped Donna and Tad when they're trapped in the car by Cujo it's like it's we introduce characters we give them lots of reasons to be really busy also we can get to that point also we can get to that trapped bottle moment for uh, Donna and Tad which is so cool because the Cambers Joe Charity the husband and wife and their son Brett are mechanic are a mechanic family and they own Cujo. Now it's heavily implied that the uh, that Joe is abusing his family either verbally or physically or both, maybe even emotionally. And Charity wants out. Luckily, she's won the lottery. At least she says she has, which is a fun wrinkle. And uh, she's going to go visit her sister. What Joe doesn't realize is she's taking Brett and they are leaving for good. Joe, meanwhile, is talking to his friend and, hey, they won the lottery. They should go down to uh, some place to, to have fun, like uh, Atlantic City or I don't remember. They're in Rhode Island. So wherever it's close by and convenient for fun to be had with money. So that takes care of the Cambers. The Cambers are out of town. Uh, they, oh, oh, wait, are the Cambers out of town? Man, I always do, I'm always supposed to write down these. Let's see. That's right. So Joe doesn't get a chance to have fun with his friend. His friend's name is Gary. And after Vic leaves for 10 days, it's going to take him 10 
days at least to solve this uh, advertising marketing crisis. Uh, Cujo kills Joe Camber's friend, Gary. Gary is, um, uh, I think, checking in on Cujo, maybe. Joe asked him to, like, look for him or maybe just to check on something back at his house. But uh, Cujo kills him, I'm pretty sure, because of a phone ringing. It's a really cool. In the book, it's a little clearer. There are, there are entire chapters from Cujo's point of view where it, like, kind of illustrates his uh, mental degradation until he's essentially a monster inside and out. Uh, governed by impulses and uh, stimuli. And in fact, it's a great way that they show it in the movie. Uh, Really, it's a testament to the director, Louis Teague, how they communicate to me, the viewer, that Cujo believes the phone ringing inside, which is causing him pain because of his uh, sound sensitivity, because of the rabies, is a result of this new guy, Gary. And he thinks, the movie lets us know that Cujo thinks this guy's to blame for this pain in my head, that ringing noise. So I gotta kill him. So he does. Then Joe finds Gary's body and Cujo kills Joe. So, so far we've got Gary dead and Joe Camber dead. Anyway, Joe uh, Donna drives the Pinto. It was, I, I figured out what kind of car it was. It was a Pinto. Donna drives it to Joe Camber's with Tad because, you know, she doesn't want to leave him alone. And that's when Cujo traps them. Oh my God, Tad, the the actor uh, Danny Pintaro, who I don't know what he's doing now, but he deserves uh, a big, big pat on the back for his performance in this. He is six years old and he sells the whole thing. I mean, D. Wallace is doing a great job, but man, Tad screaming his head off and his face all contorted in what I what really looks like genuine fear and anguish and and uh, God. Just, just the, just the way he cries and the way it looks so authentic, and frankly, it makes me realize like mm, that <laughs> he's he's a great actor because he's pulling from like a place of reality, like he's actually making himself cry. He's not movie crying, and so it kind of comes off as uh, like, oh, it's this kid crying. If you've ever seen a kid crying, like in a shopping mall or a supermarket or something like it, uh, a shopping mall or supermarket, listen to me, I sound like I'm from like the 50s. Uh, No, I don't. Oh, geez, why don't I even talk sometimes? Anyway, he does a great job. Cujo traps them. The car won't start. It's super hot. They've established all of this. And Vix started to try to contact Donna while he's in wherever he is. And each failed attempt to reach Donna is written off as her still sleeping with Steve. Because if she's not answering the phone and she's lonely and we're mad at each other, then of course she's sleeping with him. Why? Like, uh, what a horrible situation for Vic, honestly. Moving right along, Cujo demonstrates that he can break through the door to the phone. When uh, Donna and Tad are sitting in the car, the phone rings again and Cujo breaks the door down to get in there. And each time, a little digression, each time we see Cujo, he looks worse and worse and worse. And they do this with a combination of uh, like egg whites and uh, just you know movie magic things that I'll explain a little bit later. But man, he looks bad. Bad. Cujo looks bad. And it's great that the characters honestly react to that. It's not like they see him and they're like, oh, what's wrong, Cujo? How are you feeling? Like, he looks bad. Do not approach a dog that looks like Cujo does. Ugh. 
So um, another chance for them to be saved comes in the form of the mailman who is just about to walk out the door to deliver mail when another person reminds him, oh, hey, the Cambers are on vacation. You don't have to deliver mail to them this week. And the mailman's like, thanks, saved me a trip. There's so many things like that that all we want is for someone to come visit that house. And it's so far away from the road, there's no way that anyone would just come upon it on accident. After Cujo slams the car door and tries to punish them for ringing the phone again because he broke the door down and he thought that that's what would make the phone stop ringing, but the phone rings again. Donna finally summons the courage to uh, get out of the car and try to run inside, but man, Cujo claws her up. She gets pushed back into the car and Cujo bites her leg and there's just so much chaos going on and Tad is screaming in the back and she's just trying to beat Cujo and uh, eventually she does and Cujo like uh, goes back outside. Maybe the phone rings, I don't remember, but she closes the door and she passes out. Meanwhile, Vic starts heading home because he's not getting calls. His wife isn't responding to his calls. He's getting concerned not just that she's sleeping uh, with another man, but that, you know, something could be wrong. So he leaves. And it's funny because one of his coworkers, when he explains, like, listen, I got to go. And he's like, you can't go. My wife's having an affair. And they're like, oh, oh, I totally get it. Yeah, go. You you do what you need to do. Yeah. So he, uh, like, heads home. He takes the flight or drives home. I don't know. But uh, when we cut back to uh, Donna and Tad, Tad is, like, wheezing. I don't remember if they established this earlier, but he's maybe it just has to do with the heat in the car or just the intense uh, situation of it all. But he's wheezing, and he's like, <sighs> like, he can't breathe. It's, it's, it's freaky. It's freaking me out. And I can only imagine what um, uh, Danny Pintaro's mother was doing on set while he was doing that because he's so good. Uh, anyway, Vic Ar- um, Donna tries her best to, to save him. They're completely out of water, and every time we cut back to them, they look a little bit drier, and just it just looks awful. And the scariest part is when you realize that they're not sweating anymore, because that's, that's when real dehydration sets in. There is no more water in their bodies. Vic arrives at the home to find the house trashed. Steve, the uh, lover of Donna, who was, you know, committing the adultery, showed up at the house looking for Donna, and when he didn't find her, he trashed their house. And so when Vic showed up, he didn't know what happened. He thought it was maybe a home invasion. He thought maybe she had been kidnapped. The police are telling... The police are telling him that uh, maybe she ran away and that she'll call back in a couple of days. But one thing that they do learn is that uh, the Pinto was supposed to be taken over to the Cambers. And that's when they send one of the police officers to check on that. And in fact, it's uh, Sheriff George Bannerman who goes to check on uh, the Camber house. And I think it's so funny because he does. He gets all the way there and we see the car and uh, Donna and Tad are passed out inside of it from from heat exhaustion slash heat stroke. But he doesn't call it in. If you're a police officer anywhere that you arrive, the moment you arrive, before you get out of your car, you're just supposed to call in and say where you are, especially at a time like this when there are no GPS or cell phones where they can just like see where you are on a computer at all times. He doesn't call it in and that's That's why when he inevitably gets killed by Cujo, no one knows what happened. No one knows to go check on the Camber's house. Um, And it's really funny. Uh, Once the sheriff here dies, Tad kind of goes just like into a fit where he's 
oh man, excuse me. Tad goes into a fit where he's screaming, I want my daddy, I want my daddy, I want daddy. And Donna's right there and she screams, all right, I'll get your daddy. <laughs> it's a really great, like honest, authentic moment for them as a family. God, this movie's so good. So uh, Vic is not convinced that Joe came, or yeah, that uh, Sheriff Bannerman got all the way to Camber's house and still hasn't found anything interesting. So he takes matters into his own hands and he hops into his uh, his convertible. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh no, he's in a convertible. Cujo's gonna get him as soon as he gets there. He needs to be in something covered. So um, so he's on the way. And here we go. Here's the end. So Tad isn't waking up. He's in the back of the uh, Pinto, and he's breathing really lightly, but he won't wake up. And Dawn is trying, but when she realizes, like, this is it. This is it. We're going to die in here, or I'm going to die out there. Uh, Or Kuja's going to die out there. So... Donna saves her baby. Oh my God. While wearing heels, she goes out of the car and uh, tries her best and grabs, she, she, she goes for a bat and she starts beating Cujo when he approaches, when he runs for her. He starts beating her over the, uh, <laughs> she starts beating him over the head with that bat until it snaps in half. And then Cujo goes for one big lunge and she stops stabs him she lays down and he falls on top of the split and a half bat and that's how Cujo dies well actually (laughs) so then Donna retrieves Tad from the car still wearing her heels goes all the way into the kitchen and gets some water for him and starts like rubbing it all over his body because he's just a shriveled up raisin at this point and then she starts giving him like uh, CPR and uh, it's so funny in these old movies no one really knew how to give CPR she's doing her best and I mean her best uh Tad wakes up. And, well, like kind of. He's he's like coughing and he's delirious a little bit. But then Cujo is still alive and he comes into the house and he's coming he's coming to get them, but uh uh Donna had grabbed Sheriff Bannerman's gun and shoots Cujo and that's when he officially dies. And then finally Vic arrives in his little convertible and he gets out and they embrace and that's the end. It literally like fades to black as they see each other again for the first time in what I think was only about 2 days that they're stuck in that car, 2 days, 3 nights. This was the third day, I think. Um but uh yeah, it's such a great moment when they arrive back there. And that's the story of Cujo from start to finish, essentially. Uh, So I wanted to talk about some of the uh, themes that come up in this movie, specifically the one of loyalty. So everyone's all, uh, obviously you've heard of the idea of a a dog is man's best friend. And with that comes some intrinsic loyalty that your dog is loyal to you and... uh, Another one is that your wife or your husband is loyal to you, that your son is loyal to you, and ideally as a child, your mother and father are loyal to you. And man, this movie plays with that because poor Vic and Donna, uh, yeah, poor Vic and Donna, they're supposed to be this power couple. They're supposed to, like, they have this nice house and they have their their son, and it's not a nuclear family, but it's a perfect, like, life that they've made for themselves. And for whatever reason, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm not blaming Donna in this situation. I feel that it's uh, a two-person game for this kind of event to happen in people's lives. But for whatever reason on both parts, maybe it goes into it in the book a little bit, Todd and or, uh, Vic and Donna are not happy together. <laughs> I mean, Vic seems happy, but Donna uh, is looking for something else and has lost her loyalty. In the uh, uh, And another side of the coin, 
Cujo is loyal to uh, what seems like Brett Camber and the whole family, the whole Camber family. And they even mentioned like, oh, Cujo's a, just a big softy. He's a big pushover. He wouldn't hurt a fly. Uh, and he really seems like it. I mean, St. Bernard's, they're so cuddly and soft and big and like just like a big panda. I certainly like them. I think I still like them even after watching this movie. Uh, but after he gets his mind poisoned by that uh, rabies, uh, once again, it's not anything of his own volition or his own fault necessarily. It's just an unraveling of the idea of loyalty and losing that attachment to the people that uh, you thought were family in, in um, both a metaphysical way and a very physical way for both of these pairs of characters, Vic and Donna and Cujo and Brett. I have mother and son here, but they pretty much rely uh, remain loyal to each other. Uh, Donna and Tad, yeah, are the only two in that car. They're the only ones they have to rely on each other. Uh, so, yeah, they stay loyal to each other. And this movie kind of brings up a, a, a sub-genre of horror that I'm going to coin. I don't know if it's a real thing, but I'm going to call it uh, natural horror, as opposed to supernatural horror, where there's elements of ghosts or aliens or ideally things that I'm going to argue do not exist in our world versus natural horror, like this movie, Cujo, or there's another movie I watched uh, recently that I might make an episode on, I don't know, but uh, a 1981's Venom that features a, a deadly snake heavily. Uh, or Anaconda, like um, Louis Teague made, or, uh, oh, I'm sorry, Alligator. He didn't make uh, Anaconda, but he did make Alligator, and he also made Cat's Eye after this, which isn't really about an animal, but my point is that this movie occupies the idea that the natural world is scary enough, that there's enough really scary real things in existence that we don't need vampires and mummies to remind us uh, to be scared of uh, like the, the occasional uh, strange dog when you have a child or even when you're a full-grown adult. God, Gary and Sheriff Bannerman, they're full-grown adults and they still get taken down by a dog. It's a dog as big as Cujo, you can only imagine. Uh, so, yeah, I, I like that idea of natural horror. And I brought it up earlier uh, about the structure of this movie being set up in such a way of getting all the characters out of the way so that you can have this really tight, like, almost bottle of, to keep your two characters trapped in, your two main characters trapped in. And, like, after thinking about it a little bit longer, is that, like, every movie? If you, if you break it down that, oh, yeah, obviously we have to introduce our characters in the beginning, and then at some point we have to put them, they have to all be leading to a certain situation, whether or not they're actually trapped in there, like physically they're trapped plot-wise until they're able to, you know, free themselves from it and save the day, so... It, it's just something that I thought about because I thought this movie was particularly unique in that way. But uh, upon further reflection, I realized it's kind of just archetypal of um, movies in general. Uh, so you might have noticed at the end, uh, this is a pretty happy ending. Not for Cujo, obviously, but for everyone else. Tad lives, Donna lives, Vic lives. The only people that don't live are a couple of uh, supporting characters here and there. There's no real... Uh, there's no one really to mourn in the main cast. Not the case with the original story. In the book, Tad dies of dehydration while Donna contracts rabies from her fight with Cujo. And the book 
ends on that note. That after after she tries to save her son and even contracts rabies from fighting Cujo in, in, in trying to save her son, it's all for naught. And Tad had already died of dehydration. It's awful. And frankly, man, I don't know. I don't know. I really love dark stories like that. Stephen King, unfortunately, said that if he could go back and change anything from one of his books, any one of them, it would be letting Tad live. And apparently that's why he survives in this film. Uh, Stephen King, I don't think he had a writing credit on this, but I'm sure he uh, was at least asked what he would change. And he said, Tad should live. And it's interesting from a filmmaking perspective, obviously Tad should live. It's kind of a a rule that's becoming less and less... uh, steadfast or uh, firm these days, but that children are safe and that whatever movie, especially horror uh, movie that you have where children are threatened, there's really no fear. They're going to be fine. Maybe they'll get a scratch or something, but they're not going to die by all means. In books, anything goes. I mean, you still have to consider your audience and what people want, but when you're Stephen King and you've created a a, a brand around uh, real-world horrors, then killing a kid like that... I mean, have any of you seen The Mist? Uh, the, the, uh, the movie? that I'm pretty sure that was different from the, 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 the original book, too. So, uh, I don't know where I'm going with that, but that's the, that's the original ending. The original novel was also a... Uh, oh, I already mentioned this earlier, but, um, yeah, Frank Dodd's... Uh, boogeyman in castle rock and hinted at that he's possessing cujo that has nothing to do with this movie version um and then finally uh in the movie donna shoots cujo with uh, sheriff bannerman's gun but in the book it's the bat that uh stabs him that that final lunge and stab is what kills him that extra bit where cujo you know comes into the house and gets shot with the gun uh just feels like movie uh what is that scream rule like this is the part where the killer comes back for one last scare bah! i mean it works it just it feels a little uh tacked on there um, so let's see, that, that, that covers my themes. I had a, an interesting note here. The St. Bernard that was featured most in the film, uh, I believe that would be uh, Mo, unfortunately died of bloat during production. Now, I had to look up what bloat was. I've heard of it before, and I know it's common in dogs, but I didn't know that it was so heavily prevalent in uh, St. Bernard. So bloat is a medical and surgical emergency. As the stomach fills with air, pressure builds which stops blood from the hind legs and abdomen from returning to the heart so blood pools at the back end of the body reducing the working blood volume and sending the dog into shock and even in the mildest cases of bloat which is extremely rare dogs die without treatment because the oxygen starved pancreas produces some very toxic hormones one in particular targets the heart and stops it cold And in fact, a dog can go through successful treatment and seem to be completely out of danger when suddenly the heart stops. That sounds absolutely awful. And I can only imagine what it's like to have a St. Bernard and just know that it could go from perfectly happy and comfortable to within hours, shock and it's heart stopping and it dying. So that scares me out of wanting to get a St. Bernard way more than the idea of it maybe contracting rabies. Anything can contract rabies. You could contract rabies. My cat could contract rabies. But uh, a St. Bernard getting bloat just like that makes me sad. 
To make the St. Bernards attack the car, animal trainers put the dog's favorite toys inside the car so the dogs would try to get them. See, this is this is what's funny about the movie is I can suspend my disbelief to imagine, you know, the dog attacking him or even the six-year-old being just absolutely distraught. But when the dog's tails are wagging, when they're supposed to be just, just super crazy, and, and I mean dogs, I say dogs because there were multiple dogs who portrayed the dog but when the dog's tail is wagging it's 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 hard for me to suspend my disbelief maybe if i didn't have a dog and i wasn't or i mean i don't have a dog now but maybe if i didn't wasn't familiar with dogs it would be a little more effective but that's something that comes off uh right away and in fact they would wag their tails so much that they had to tie them down to their legs because they'd be enjoying themselves too much. Uh, this tactic, it says, was missed once in editing where they show Cujo from behind ready to attack and his tail's wagging really energetically. I, I know the scene that they're talking about. The foam around Cujo's mouth I mentioned earlier was made of a concoction of egg whites and sugar, and the dogs caused problems on set by constantly licking the tasty stuff off. <laughs> what? I mean, okay, I understand not wanting to, uh, you know, make something poison for the dogs if you're going to put it on their uh, face, for God's sakes, but sugar? What? What's, the, what's the point of adding sugar to the egg, egg whites? Does that make it froth more? I, when I, froth more. <laughs> froth more hungers. <laughs> Oh boy, that's the coffee talking. Um, yeah, when I look at him in this movie, I don't see like frothing like I picture. It's more of just like this caked on gross snot and eye booger that's that's like rubbed in with dirt maybe. Um, but it's great. Doesn't look like egg whites or sugar and I never saw the dogs licking it off, but apparently made the uh, production hell. Finally, a Rottweiler was used for some of the scenes because they didn't get the St. Bernard to look mean enough. Rottweilers... Oh, I'm thinking of Dobermans. Yeah, Rottweiler could kind of look like a St. Bernard. Um, you know what would be fun? I would love to see a cut of this movie where, like, in the lower corner it says uh, either the name of the dog or the breed of the dog and what was going on at the time. Uh, so that, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> that would, I, mm, I, who knows? Who knows? Um, let's see. So that uh, covers that. Uh, finally, I thought it was interesting that in 2015, Sun Classic Pictures announced that it would develop another adaptation of Cujo titled C-U-J-O, which stands for Canine Unit Joint Operations. I'm pretty sure that never came out, but oh man, if that's something we have to look forward to is some kind of, like when I read that Canine Unit Joint Operations, obviously it's supposed to be like SWAT, but all I can think of is like Robo Cujo. It's some kind of like robot, Robocop version of, of uh, Cujo the dog. So uh, <laughs> I don't want to see that. Um, let's see. Okay, so finally, I have some answers on uh, this Castle Rock situation. So the Dead Zone film was being adapted at the same time as this movie was being made by another studio. So they were released roughly two months apart. This movie came out in August 1983. The Dead Zone came out in October 1983. So it's kind of funny. We're doing this out of order. We covered uh, The Dead Zone earlier on this show, and now we're covering Cujo. But technically, Cujo takes place after The Dead Zone. So I can understand how it might be kind of confusing. But the last tie between the two is that Sheriff Bannerman, in fact, 
uh, shows up in the dead zone. But his death in this movie is the reason Castle Rock has a new sheriff in uh, in the dead zone. Alan Pangborn appears. Uh, he also appears in The Dark Half. He's played by Michael Rooker. And then in Needful Things, uh, played by Ed Harris. And one last, last trivia, Needful Things, which was produced by Rob Reiner, who also directed Stand By Me, named his production company Castle Rock. So there you have it. Rob Reiner apparently is a super fan of Stephen King. He named his production company Castle Rock, and I'm sure the uh, production company that's making Castle Rock has some uh, bones to pick with him. (laughs) So I think that covers everything. I don't have anything else on my notes here that I want to talk about, so that wasn't so bad, was it? Uh, Yeah, um... I guess all that's left is for me to talk about uh, how I, what I thought about the film. We'll rate this movie on a scale of one to five thumbs, one being the worst and five being the best. I am going to give Cujo, well, let's see, it's a really, really fun movie. I love, I'm an animal lover, I'll admit it, so I love seeing uh, the opening scenes of this dog and all of the shots of where just the dog is uh, on screen is great. Using the camera to communicate what he's uh, focusing on and the associations he's making, however uh, misguided they are because of the rabies. It's really fun to watch uh, in that way. Uh, the the uh, no never mind I'll talk about the the, the actors uh, D Wallace and Danny Pintaro in that car together sell the movie and it's ironic that apparently so it's super boiling hot in that car you can tell they do such a good job not the case I mean this is just you know fantastic cinematography and editing and movie magic it was actually freezing cold in that car and they would have to turn up the heat to make it so their breath didn't show because could you imagine if it was supposed to be super hot and their breath was showing it would make no sense so these actors are doing an even better job than it looks like uh which is great because man if i i I can't imagine a a worse hell than being trapped in a hot car like that oh my god where your only alternative is is almost certain death outside oh ooh, i just got uh i just got some terrible terrible uh connections to uh the people in the world trade center towers and how just I don't know why I bring that up. That was a terrible thing to bring up toward the end as I'm wrapping up here. Uh, it's in my, oh my God, it's in my uh, my rating. <laughs> I'll try to distance myself from that as quickly as I can by giving this movie four thumbs. It's not a perfect movie, but what movie is? Uh, I saved my five uh, thumber, my five thumbers for the really, really big ones that, that speak to me on a primal level. This one is really fun. I might if I did halves, I would give it a four and a half, but in this case, I'm only giving uh, Cujo four thumbs. And I'm going to award those thumbs. I think you all know I'm going to give one thumb to Tad. Danny Pintaro does such a good job in every scene that he's in. Honestly, the first scene that you see him where he has to run from the light switch to the bed, we've all, I don't know if we've all done it, but I have. I've done that exact same thing specifically at my grandparents' house when I would stay in their guest room. Who does this? The light switch is all the way across the room. I guess it needs to be near the door, but still, it's all the way across the room, and there's a big picture of my grandmother on the other side of the wall that constantly morphs in the dark if I look at it too long. So turning that light off and racing to the bed with my eyes closed, I totally get that. One thumb is definitely going to Tad. I'm going to give another thumb to... uh, Vic with his perm he is god man he is he's trying his hardest to keep this marriage together 
and it seems like everything is against him. He, he's he's just trying to be a good dad, and the monster word stuff, like, he, he's doing a good job, and he's trying to be there for his wife and everything, so I'm definitely going to give uh, him, played by Daniel Hugh Kelly, a thumb. And uh, just to wrap things up, I'm going to give both of my last thumbs to Cujo, uh, and I guess I'll have to cut those thumbs in half so that I can give all four of them to the four different St. Bernards, including the uh, late one. But I'm not giving one to the stuntman that played Cujo. <laughs> I'm just giving it to the uh, St. Bernards. They're little dew claws. And that's that. So if you haven't seen Cujo, now you don't have to because I completely ruined it for you. <laughs> Thanks for uh, spending some time here on the Gory Days, and thank you again for being uh, a loyal listener. I don't know if you're listening to this while you do your work, or on your way to work, or on your way home from work, <laughs> but, but hopefully it's somehow related to your work. Now, wherever you listen to this, I'm happy that you're inviting me into your home to talk about the horror movies that I love and that hopefully you love too. On the next episode of The Gory Days, hopefully I'll have another guest, but if not, it'll be just you and me. Uh, Until next time, stay scary out there. The Gory Days!